0: As we sing that song, you know, I can't help but think about Romans 8. And so I'm going to cheat a little bit. Is in a moment we're going to read our passage for today that we're going to hear Pastor Kevin preach on. But I'm going to read double scripture for you if I can cheat really quickly. But, But as we sing that song, I think about Romans 8, 31 through 34. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And what a glorious truth that we can indeed plead the blood because of Jesus's goodness. But hey, as we continue through worship today, through the preaching of God's word, this is our second series, our second week on 1 Kings. And so I wanna invite you to turn there to 1 Kings chapter two. We're gonna read verses one through four together. Uh, This is in your bulletin. It'll be on the screen behind me as well. You can follow along in your copy of God's word. It says this, 1 Kings two, one through four. When the time drew near for David to die, He gave a charge to Solomon, his son. I'm about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So be strong, act like a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go and that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that we have your word, that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us through your creation. Uh, But also specifically through your word that we might know you and know how to know you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be with Pastor Kevin as he is a a messenger um, this morning and as we hear from him. Holy Spirit, I pray that for those in the room who don't know you, that their eyes would be open to your glory today. That for somebody who walked in here just as lost as can be would come to know you this morning as a result of the exposition of your word, God. For those that do know you, may our faith be strengthened. May we be closer to you today, God. Amen.
1: Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Stephen. And, and let me just say, you can cheat anytime you want to and read extra scripture. What a, what a great word from, from Romans. If you've got your bulletin with you, on the back you will find a message map. If you want to get that out, And locate that. That will help you as we go along in the message. And while you're doing that, let me say thank you for worshiping with us uh, through worship. That was a wonderful time of worship. Um, And let me say if you're in the overflow room, uh, thank you for worshiping with us as well. Or if you're listening uh, by podcast or if you're watching on video, let me just say welcome to you as well. I recently came across a very interesting article about the famous last words Of individuals. uh, Words spoken just before someone passed away. Uh, These words I would say fit into a number of different categories. Some were extremely sad, uh, some were inspiring, some were sweet. Some I would put into the category of humorous if you can say that there is anything that is humorous about dying. Uh, for example, uh, one of those listed was the famous last words of a redneck. You may have heard this, hey y'all, watch this. <laughs> An alternative to that was hold my beer and watch this. Uh, Richard Mellon made me a name that you're familiar with. Uh, he was a famous multimillionaire, a wealthy banker a hundred years ago. He and his younger brother, Andrew, had a game of tag that went for about seven decades. And when Richard was on his deathbed, he called his younger brother, Andrew, over, and his last words were, tag, you're it. And then he died. And so Andrew had to remain it for the next four years until his death. Uh, James W. Rogers in 1960 uh, was convicted— of murder, and he was placed in front of a firing squad in Utah, and he was asked, do you have any final request? And his response was, yes, bring me a bulletproof vest. (laughs) Again, famous last words. Some of the famous last words I would classify as ironic. Uh, The Union General John Sedwich, uh, during a Civil War battle in May of 1964, Reportedly said, as his last words, they couldn't hit an elephant from this distance. And then he died from a gunshot that was from the enemy. Uh, basketball great Pete Maravich reportedly said in 1988, during the middle of a pickup basketball game, I feel great. And then he died of a heart attack shortly afterwards. Some we would put under the category of Inspiring. Uh, You may have heard of the last words of Todd Beamer, who is a passenger on United Airlines flight 93, just before leading a group of passengers to attack the terrorist who had overtaken the plane that was headed for the White House. His last known words before dying were, let's roll, spoken to that group of men who saved that plane from hitting the White House. Or Thomas More. Thomas More served as a lawyer under King Henry VIII. He refused to sign Henry's divorce papers and his execution was ordered and his last words were, I die the king's faithful servant, but God's first. There is something that is noteworthy about the last words spoken by an individual especially if they know that those words will be their last. Most people, as they draw their last breath, will not waste their words. They will be careful to communicate that which is of the greatest importance. So why, why do I bring all of this up? Uh, as you can see on your message map, we are continuing today today our series in the book of first kings and if you were here last week when we kicked off this series you know that i talked about that first and second kings were originally one book and that that book covers a period from about 960 bc through 586 bc it begins under king david and under king david israel was one united nation and then under his son solomon It was a united nation, and then the kingdom split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, something that we will cover later in this series. And so Kings covers from David's reign, the end of David's reign, all the way through the destruction of the southern kingdom in 586 B.C. And last week, as we kicked off this series, we saw David, who had ruled over Israel for 40 years. On his deathbed, he was in his last days on earth. And we saw where his son Adonijah made a run at the throne to become king. However, David had made an oath to Solomon's mother Bathsheba. He had made an oath to the Lord that her son uh, Solomon would become the next king over Israel. And so David then corrected that situation and he made sure that Solomon was installed as king. Today, as you heard Stephen read earlier... Uh, David makes a speech to his son Solomon just before he dies. He knows that he is dying and that these are the final words of his life. In fact, Stephen did not read all the way down to verse 10, but in verse 10, we read these words, David rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. The city of David is another name for Jerusalem. So David literally spoke these as his last words, and then he was buried in Jerusalem. Before resting with his fathers, this is the advice that David had for Solomon. This is advice that comes from someone with a lot of experience, someone who had made a lot of mistakes, and someone who desperately wanted his son to avoid making those same mistakes. And so essentially, David was saying to Solomon this, if you want your life to go well, then follow this advice. If you do not follow this advice, then your life will not go well. There's this exercise that I do with young couples who come to me for premarital counseling. Uh, they, They will come in and we will... Um, go through some introductory things, and then I will have them do this. And I will say something like this to them. I want you to imagine a snapshot of your lives 50 or 60 years from now. So most of these couples who come to me are in their 20s or maybe their 30s. And so I say, I want you to imagine this moment in time that will happen when you are in your 70s or your 80s. You're on the back porch of your home or your back deck. You're in rocking chairs. You're looking out over your backyard. You're holding hands. And let's just imagine that it's your anniversary. And so you're looking back and you're talking about your wedding day. And you're talking about, all the things that have transpired since that day. And you spend time talking about the last 50 or 60 years together. How do you want that conversation to go? What do you want to talk about in that conversation? What kinds of things do you hope you say to one another in that conversation? So most every couple will talk about, I hope hope we're talking about our kids, at that point our grandkids. I hope we're talking about all that we have experienced over our marriage, that it's been more than just a marriage that has survived, but one that has thrived over these years. And they say, I hope that we talk about the fact that we were active in church and that we were serving in church. And I hope we're able to say at that moment that we're still in love. that, that we still hold hands while sitting in these rocking chairs on the back porch. I will simply listen and I will let them paint that picture. And then I will say to them something like this. If that is the goal, if that is what you want out of this marriage, then let's work backwards from there because what you are envisioning right now will not just happen. You have to be intentional about your choices and the decisions that you make as a couple if you want that to be your long-term goal. Every time I have done that exercise, every single time I have never had a couple say to me, well, I hope that that 50 or 60 year from now picture is one we're just cold towards one another, <laughs> where we've been fighting for all of these decades. Or I've never had a couple say, well, really our plan right now is that that will never happen. We'll divorce five, 10 years from now. I've never had a couple say that yet. We know that is reality in so many marriages. Why? Because you have to be intentional about creating the kind of marriage that has that 50 or 60 year rocking chair experience. And that is not just true in marriage. That is true in everything in life. There's a phrase I've heard for years that goes something like this. Everyone ends up somewhere, a few people actually end up there on purpose. Meaning, most people just go and do without being intentional in the choices that they make? Without really considering how do I make good decisions? So here's our question. How can you and I be this minority segment of the population that is actually intentional about the decisions that we make in life? David's famous last words to his son give us some valuable insight and how to do this so you can see this on your message map the first step in making really good decisions is to listen to godly individuals that is your first blank listen to godly individuals chapter two opens with these words When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to his son Solomon. Now if you've studied the life of King David, you know that he certainly had his faults. Chief among them was his weakness for women. Uh, By the way, his son Solomon had that same problem in spades, something we will see later in this series. David made a lot of mistakes. However, at the end of the day, David loved, loved, loved God. In, In fact, David was known as a man after God's own heart. I want you to notice in your New Testament from Acts 13, This description of King David says, after removing Saul, he, God, made David their king. God testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse. See that phrase? A man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. David loved the Lord deeply. He was close to the heart of God which meant when he did stumble in sin, he repented and he turned back to the Lord. It was good for Solomon to listen to the advice of his father, David, not just because David had a number of years of experience, not just because David had gained a heart of wisdom, but because David had truly a heart for the Lord. A big part of making good decisions is knowing which advice to listen to, is knowing who to go to for advice and how to listen to the advice and the opinions of those who are close to the Lord. I'm sure you know this, but there are so many jobs right now that you can do. If you're a young person, there are jobs you can choose to do in life that were not available to me when I was getting out of school. Uh, for example, you can go to school and you can choose to be a telemedicine doctor. That was not available to me. That was not available 15 years ago. Uh, you can be a virtual assistant. You can today work full-time for a company that is headquartered across the country or even in another part of the world and rarely, if ever, actually be in the same room with your coworkers. One of the jobs that you can have today that was not available to me is the job of being an influencer. If a teacher had asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, an influencer, a teacher would have been thoroughly confused. But today, that is a job. You use your social media platform to influence the opinions and the worldviews of others. So here's the question I have for you. Who is influencing you? Who are you allowing to speak into your heart and into the decisions that you are making? And if that is the cyber world, I promise you that is rarely good advice that you are getting. The first step in decision making is to make sure that you are listening to the advice of those who are godly individuals step number two and you can write this in on your message map is to number your days your blank there is number notice how david began his speech to solomon he said i am about to go the way of all the earth the way of all the earth was obviously an expression for physical death David knew, this is it, that he was about to die. And before he died, he wanted to impart this wisdom to his son. There is something about numbering our days that enables us to make better decisions in life. When you know that your time on this earth is limited, somehow that sobering reality Enables you to make better decisions in life. In Psalm 90, there is this prayer that was written by Moses, and part of his prayer was this Lord, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I've always found this to be an interesting line. Teach us to number our days. At first blush, it seems that Moses was saying to God, teach us to keep in mind that we will only live 60 or 70 or 80 uh, years on this earth. Teach us this fact. But Moses knew that fact. It wasn't like he was praying for more intellectual knowledge. Rather, what Moses was saying to God was this. Lord, teach me to remember that my days are numbered and to make decisions in light of the fact that I will not be in this physical body forever. Let this truth give my heart a way to make wise decisions. Several years ago when I was in school in Birmingham, Alabama, I went to a a funeral with a friend whose employer had suddenly passed away. Uh, I remember very well that this man was in his early 50s. And the reason I remember that is at the time, I thought that was old. Not so much now. And this guy appeared to be in very good health. He was very active. He was in shape. He ate well. However, one night, quite unexpectedly, he had a heart attack and he died in his sleep. And at his funeral, several people got up and they talked about what a tremendous person he was, how he had this amazing work ethic, how he built this company from the ground up, and how good he was to his employees, how he took care of them financially, how he loved them, how he cared about them. They told a number of stories about the pranks that he would pull at the office and how much he made everyone laugh. They talked about how he gave back to the community, how he sponsored Little League sports teams and how he was active in several civic organizations. And they all talked about what an incredible person he was. But what was completely absent from that funeral service was the name of Jesus Christ. Not one scripture was read. There was a generic prayer that was uttered by someone. But that was it. And what I learned is this guy was not anti-God or anti-Jesus in any way. He had just never really given any consideration to the fact that his days were numbered. And that all that he had accomplished in his 50 years on this earth did not matter much at all from an eternal perspective. None of us in here know how many days we will be given. None of us know what that number actually is. But we all know that we have a number. We all know that there will come a day that we draw our last breath. Are you making decisions in your life today based on that truth? And let me just say, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you are not. Then you have not lived your life in a way knowing that your days are numbered. Because when you draw your last breath, you will be lacking the thing that is of greatest importance in your life. And if you do know Jesus, are you living with that eternal? eternal perspective, if you take everything in your life that you have ever done, that you have ever accomplished, and you put it on a ledger sheet and you draw a line underneath, what does it add up on the day that you die? What does it add up to? Does it matter? Will it matter much? Or have you lived in such a way that is only for the here and now? I promise you that simply numbering your days will help you tremendously in making wise decisions in life. Here's a third one. You can write this in. Number three, to make good decisions, stand for what is right. I love this advice of David to Solomon in verse two. He says, so be strong. And you see that next phrase? Act like a man. That Hebrew phrase there, act like a man, literally means to show courage. And we see this phrase both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In one place we find it is in 1 Samuel chapter 4, where the Philistines are in a battle against the Israelites, and suddenly the Philistines hear the Israelites give this loud cry in their camp. And someone in the Philistine camp says, what's going on? The Israelites are suddenly excited. And they discover that the Ark of the Covenant had come into the Israelite camp. And they said, a, a God has entered their camp. And the text says the Philistine army began to shake with fear. And one of the Philistines says this to his fellow soldiers. Be strong, Philistines. Notice that next phrase, be men or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. We see this in the New Testament as well. In his concluding remarks to the church at Corinth, Paul used a very similar phrase when he wrote this. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith. You see that phrase there? Act like men. Be strong. That phrase, act like men or be men, it means to show courage. It means to stand up for what is right, even when others will not. To do the things that need to be done. I want to note a couple of things about this phrase. Number one, there is this modern idea that is around you all the time that we see throughout our culture that these lines between men and women have been blurred uh, so that there is no longer a distinction between the genders. Since the dawn of human history, there have been two genders. For all of my life, if I have to fill out a survey, whether it's on paper or online, it has always been there's the choice between male and female on that survey. You check the box, you fill in the bubble, you circle one or the other. But now our culture has said, no, no. Two genders, that's ridiculous. That's old fashioned. In in fact, I read an article recently about the number of different genders one can choose when filling out one's profile on Facebook. Have you seen this? there are 58 different gender options you can choose. Meaning you can mark male, you can mark female, or one of 56 other possible gender options. Among those are trans female, trans male, trans person, gender variant, gender questioning, Bigender, pangender, intersex, or the one I love, nothing. <laughs> Just nothing at all. And this is essentially understand the mentality behind this. This is our world very clearly saying we will to be our own gods. We want no one to tell us what to do, including God, and so God cannot control my life. In fact, God does not even get to make the decision about whether I am male or female. I get to choose what I want to be because I am in charge. That is one observation about this. The Bible is very clear that God created male and female. There are two genders. There's another thing about this passage though. This phrase means be courageous and this applies to males and to females to stand up for what is right. But I think because of the way that that phrase is worded, there is a special message for men. You want to be a man, do what is right. You want to be a man, look out for others. You want to be a man, don't act selfish. You want to be a man, you want to really stand up and be a man, then don't give in to that temptation. You want to be a man, then fight for your marriage. You want to be a man, then tell your children that the devil has no business here in this household and we are going to church on Sunday. There you go. <laughs> you know, you, sometimes y'all are too Baptist. And I'm Baptist <laughs> through and through, but to inter- interject a little bit more energy into it. Be a man. Look out for the good of others. If you're a high schooler, be a man. Someone's getting bullied, stand up for that person. Be a man. Paul here says... Stand up for what is right. David says to his son Solomon, be a man. You want to make good decisions? Here's what I promise you, promise you. If you will stand up for what is right, you will never regret that. Number four, saturate yourself with God's word. There's your blank there. Saturate yourself with God's word. Notice the advice that David gave to Solomon in verse three. Walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations, what as written in the law of Moses. David's reference to the decrees and the commands and the laws written in the law of Moses, that was a reference to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. At this point in history, that was their scripture. Later, scripture would also include the the full 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament. And here David pleads with Solomon, be faithful to God's word. Now let me just pause here and say, we recognize we cannot do it fully. That's why Jesus came. Scripture points us to the holiness of God and our inability to keep the law perfectly. And that's why Jesus came, to keep the law perfectly on our behalf. We can never measure up on our own. Jesus has measured up for us. However, we recognize that it is still God's perfect law. And when we spend time reading God's word, when we allow God's word to saturate our lives and become part of our DNA, we will make better decisions in life. Notice what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy. And let me just say, these were among the last words of Paul. David, in his last words to Solomon, said, follow God's law. Paul, in his last words to his friend Timothy, said, faithfully teach the word of God. Why? Because all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Here's what scripture does. It gives us the framework for how to make decisions in life. If you are struggling between going to this college or that college, you're right. You cannot open your Bible and go, oh, well, here's the answer. I'm supposed to go to this university. But what it does is it gives you the framework on how to make decisions. It gives you the framework on how to pray about it, how to seek advice from others, how to listen to the voice of God. And you cannot get that just by reading your Bible once a month, once every other week. I cannot encourage you enough to spend every day, some portion of your day, Reading God's words so that it saturates your life, helps to form your worldview so that you can make good decisions in life. Finally, here's the last advice on making good decisions, and that is to trust in God's goodness. At the end of the day, you make these decisions, and then you trust that God is faithful, and that God loves you, and that God wants what is best for your life. Notice what David said to Solomon. He said, do this, follow this advice, do these things so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go, and that the Lord may keep his promise to me if your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all of their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. At the end of the day, know this, that God is for you. And so often we struggle with the decision, with some choice that we face, and we worry and we worry and we worry, and we forget at the end of the day that God is absolutely on our side and wants us to make the best right decision and that we can trust in that. Many of you in here know that uh, I went to Mercer University and that when I was in college, I served as a student ministry assistant at Vineville Baptist Church, uh, which was the church that a few years later planted this church. Uh, While I was serving there, I was struggling with what I would do after graduation. And one day I had the chance to go to lunch uh, with the individual who was serving as the worship pastor at the time. Now, we didn't call him worship pastor. That was not the name that those individuals had back then. They were called ministers of music. Uh, The minister of music at the time was a man named Lloyd Landrum. Uh, He is now with the Lord. At the time, he was in his early 60s. One day, we had the chance to go to lunch, just the two of us, and we went to some sandwich shop. And we sat down, and I just began to pour out all my stresses about what was next. He sat there just calmly listening, eating his sandwich as I just vomited on the table. (laughs) All my problems all my worries what do I do next what will I do after graduation what kind of job should I get at the time I thought I might go to law school so what should I do how should I prepare he just sat there and listened ate his sandwich and he listened and finally I guess I took a breath maybe to eat my food I don't remember and he put his sandwich down and he said you know Here's what I've discovered in my life. He said, over the years, I've had to make so many decisions, but I've learned that God is good and he will just very gently open some doors and gently close other doors and direct you on the path that he wants you to go. And he said, I know you're worried now and I know that you're stressed now, but there'll come a day that you look back and you get it and you say, okay, God, now I understand why you closed that door and why you opened this other door and just how good you were to me. That was some good advice. In fact, it's been almost 30 years ago that he gave me that advice and I've remembered it all these decades later. That is good advice in making decisions in life. It has served me well and it will do the same for you.